this is sort of a pattern that's happened over the last several decades where the use of the statute expands. Prosecutors sort of build it out and lower courts accept broader and broader readings of it and the court smacks it back. And then it builds out again in a slightly different way and the court smacks it back. And certainly, as you can see with two essentially 9-0 decisions here, there's a little split with concurrences, but they're 9-0 on the verdict. The court is getting fairly tired of it and they want these statutes to be read and interpreted as they're written and charged in that way. And if that creates an issue for prosecutors, they need to deal with it, but they can't dodge problems that they may be having in their case by adopting a new theory of the case that doesn't come directly from statute. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again for another episode of the award-winning All Things Investigation. Today, I'm thrilled to have back with me Ben Britz. Ben, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you for having me back. The reason I wanted to visit with you is you wrote an article, or I believe a client alert, entitled, Hanging by a Thread, Unanimous Supreme Court Snips Back to Wire Fraud Convictions. These were very high-profile cases, and I wanted the chance to maybe visit with you about them. So could you detail for us the background facts of each cases, and then we'll move to the holdings. Sure. These cases both come out of the Cuomo administration in New York. The Prococo case, Joseph Prococo was a senior advisor to Governor Cuomo from about 2011 to 2018. And except for a very small period of about eight months where he leaves technically the employee of the state and leads Cuomo's re-election campaign. Now, during that time, he is paid $35,000 to basically lobby an arm of the state government of New York on a labor dispute related to a real estate holding, which he does, and he resolves it in his client's favor, and he goes right back into government. This is kind of the speedy revolving door case. He's out, and he's right back in. So he is charged with honest services fraud, which is a variation of wire fraud that basically says that instead of depriving the victim of money or property or depriving them of the honest services of their employee. That's the basic facts of Prococo. And the question, as you ultimately get to it, is does the fact that he wasn't in government at the time change anything? And if so, how does that affect how you read the statute? The Simonelli case is a bid rigging case based on the right to control theory. And what this is, 
it's kind of a common scheme you see if you've ever done bid rigging stuff where Simonelli, a lobbyist, and a third guy who works for the entity that's doing the bids, analyzing the bids, and they enter into an agreement whereby they scope the RFPs such that only Simonelli's company can win. You make the qualifications so specific to something unique about the company, only they can win. Simonelli wins a $750 million project and he's charged. And the theory that he's ultimately charged on, it goes through a number of iterations, but the theory he's ultimately charged on is that the authority was deprived of its right to control its own property. And what that means is that the fact that this deal was struck and kept from them deprived them of information they needed in order to properly dispose of their property, the bid. question is really whether right to control is actually part of wire fraud or not. And that is what the court is ultimately deciding is, is right to control actually wire fraud? Those are sort of the basic facts. So these two cases continue a trend we've seen at the U.S. Supreme Court, where they are holding prosecutors to a pretty strict or narrow reading of these statutes. And did you see anything in these cases that really is new or different or extends out the Supreme Court analysis? Seems the right to control issue got spanked pretty hard in the Simonelli case. Yeah, it absolutely continues the court's distrust of expansion of the wire fraud statutes. And this is sort of a pattern that's happened over the last several decades where the use of the statute expands, prosecutors sort of build it out, and lower courts accept broader and broader readings of it, and the court smacks it back. And then it builds out again in a slightly different way, and the court smacks it back. And certainly, as you can see with two essentially 9-0 decisions here, there's a little split with concurrences, but they're 9-0 on the verdict. The court is getting fairly tired of it, and they want these statutes to be read and interpreted as they're written and charged in that way. And if that creates an issue for prosecutors, they need to deal with it, but they can't dodge problems that they may be having in their case by adopting a new theory of the case that doesn't come directly from statute, because that's what's really going on in these cases. Then let me pick up on a point you raised, which is the unanimity in both decisions. Certainly for we lawyers, when the Supreme Court rules 9-0, we think must have been pretty clear cut. Court may have been trying to send a message, but the current environment, when you get all nine justices agreeing in two decisions, People tend to listen up or pay attention to that. Any real thoughts on why or how literally judges from across the spectrum would see these or lead for reversals in both? Is it really a distaste for expansion of this criminal statute in the public arena? Yes, I think it is. But these are two weird cases in that in both of them, the DOJ takes a very odd position where it only sort of half defends its case. In the Simonelli case, they admit that basically the right to control theory is improper. They say, you're right. The Second Circuit has gotten this muddled. I think that's a direct quote from the oral argument. We agree, but it doesn't matter here because the jury instruction included that it had to be in the course of actually obtaining property. 
And so court, you don't need to dump the conviction because it basically maps onto a normal reading of the wire fraud statute anyway. And the court is unimpressed by that and basically says, well, that's not what you charged. We can't affirm based on what the jury would have found. We have the case was tried under a certain theory. That's what you have to prove. And the Prococo case is similar because the jury instructions in that case are based on an old case that DOJ also agrees is not really the law. But again, they say, well, even so, it's harmless error because under proper jury instructions, again, he would have been convicted anyway. And court has the same answer to that, which is we don't care. You have to convict on the charge as given, and we don't particularly like what you're giving us as alternative jury instructions anyway. So the court in both cases, I think if it had gone on a bit more, especially I think Simonelli is a very short decision. If they had gone broader into the sort of further issues in the case and actually spelling out what they think the law is, as opposed to just saying you got it wrong here, you might have had a lot more division. But as they often do, they were able to find unanimity by issuing really narrow opinions on the points that were least in dispute and basically leaving the rest for another day. Now, that's partially where you get the concurrence in the Prococo case because the court says, okay, this wasn't on a services fraud. Then you have two justices who write an opinion that say, not only is this not on a services fraud, we think the court should have gone further and said honest services fraud, even though it's in statute, doesn't exist because it's too vague. We don't know what it means. No one knows what it means. The whole thing should be thrown out. But the court avoids that because they don't need to decide that to decide the case. So they sort of take their win and move on. So then one of the beauties of this type of opinion is you and I get to fill in perhaps what's the right answer. Well, one of the downsides to cases like these is we don't know what the answer is and we have to fill that in. So how would you help a client maybe think through this or are these decisions really put so much burden on the prosecutors to plead the case correctly and then try to tie the facts? Yeah. Able to argue with a prosecutor, you just, you haven't met the standard without really explaining to them what that standard might be. I think the Prococo case is useful in that way because to sort of circle back. The issue in Prococo is he wasn't in government at the time, but he clearly has influence in the Cuomo administration. And he clearly used that influence in the Cuomo administration. That's what he was paid for. And so the court, you can hear this in the oral argument, is struggling with, isn't it possible that someone can be not in government, but still have enough control over what the government is doing that basically bribing them is illegal? that they're not just sort of a dispassionate a lobbyist, that they actually have some semblance of state power. And where do you draw that line? If he leaves government for an afternoon, takes the lobbying money and comes back the next morning, is that somehow legal because it was just that afternoon that he didn't work for the government? And what the court seems to ultimately settle on is really an agency theory, which is essentially that in order for it to be illegal, that the individual has to have some actual delegated, whether it's expressly or implied, 
some real delegated authority that everyone knows that they are still acting on behalf of the government. It can't just be that they are understood to have influence with the government. The court gets very upset by the idea that this could affect lobbyists or eminence greases, as they say, that no one could possibly say that those things are wrong. Whether you agree with that or not, I don't know, but that's very clearly their position. As Alito says, eminence greases have existed since time immemorial, which is time immemorial is what the court says when it wants to assert a historical fact without actually doing the research. But they basically settle on if you're just someone who has influence because of your knowledge, your stature, your connections, that's fine. But if you've actually been sort of given authority by the government, whether it's expressed or understood, then under the right facts, you could still get a wire fraud conviction. I think that is helpful in understanding sort of where the line is for people who are engaged in those sorts of political activities. I think Simonelli is probably a little less useful. It gets rid of the right to control theory, uh, which is clearly why they took it. They clearly said this second circuit's the only one who has this theory. Other circuits have rejected it. We don't like it. We're going to take this case to get rid of it. I don't know that apart from that, it has particular utility other than it again signals that the court is just not interested in creative uses of the wire fraud statute. It wasn't interested in them decades ago with McNally. It wasn't interested in the skilling case, and it's not interested in them now. As many times as it's going to keep rearing its head, the court is going to keep smacking it down. Ben, are there any cases you're aware of the court has accepted cert on in this area that you might be looking for the next term, or is it really too early to tell at this point? I am not aware of any. That is a good thought, and I will actually check because I don't know. <laughs> well, I hope the circuit courts are watching this, and equally importantly, both the district courts and the prosecutors, because I think, as you've said several times, the Supreme Court made a very clear statement that they are, I don't want to use the word tired, but perhaps strongly suggesting not to charge on something that they don't bring forward and try to Absolutely. And not to convict on. It's interesting because if you go back and you look at the skilling case and what the skilling case was, was the Enron CEO who was charged with honest services fraud by virtue of self-dealing. And the Supreme Court said self-dealing isn't honest services fraud only applies to bribery and kickbacks, not to self-dealing. That's the skilling case. If you look who argued the skilling case for the Department of Justice, it was Kagan. <laughs> so Kagan has now come sort of full circle on this issue to line up with the rest of them. Well, that's an interesting tidbit. I had not realized she had argued that case for uh, the DOJ way back when. Yep. Well, Ben, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me, and I wanted to thank you for writing this article. It's some great help to the greater legal and compliance community. So I look forward to seeing what you come up with next. All right. Thank you.